What's up, guys? This is Mike. This is Dave, and you're listening to the Mike and Dave Podcast. What's up, guys? This is Mike. Welcome to episode 32 of the Mike and Dave Podcast. We've got a big show lined up for you. We're going to talk about the 2022 NBA draft. We're going to put someone on the hot seat. We're going to bring back that's disrespectful. But before any of that goes down, you know we got to start with off the top. And it's episode 32, so it's Dave's turn to come up with the prompt for that, so I'm going to kick it to him. We'll see what we're rolling out today. Hello, I am Dave. Off the top... <laughs> Mike's laughing over here. Off the top uh, for this episode. So, as y'all know, I'm a big Braves fan, and uh, over this past weekend, we saw Freddie Freeman return to Atlanta for the first time since signing with the rival Los Angeles Dodgers. I was very interested to see what the reaction was going to be to Freddie being back. Were people going to boo? Were they going to cheer? You know, all that stuff. Actually ended up being a good mix of both. Everybody cheered for him um, when they were giving him his ring, when he came up to the plate, all that. But then booed him when he was up at the plate and then cheered when he struck out. So I think it was a good mix of like, we appreciated what you did here, but also like, we don't want you to do well uh, when you're, when you're playing our team. So with that in mind, it just got me thinking about um, players returning quote home to, to face their former teams and just wanted to pick your brain a little bit. How do you think that players should be treated when they come back after leaving a franchise that they've been with for a long time? Um, and of course, th- this can change depending on the the terms of, of the exit. But do you think that players should just be loyal to the franchise? You know, obviously we can use Freddie as an example. Or do you think, and do you think that fans should reward them for their, you know, for their time in the city? Or do you think that, you know, they're an opposing player? I don't care what you did for me before. Like I'm for the team first. Well, before I make like a big, like overall prescriptive statement, I think it really just depends on like the terms of their departure. You know, like if you're a player like Freddie where, you know, I think it's, I mean, you'd know more than me about this specifically, but I think the situation was such that like Freddie wanted to come back. Like it didn't end up playing out, but that's sort of where those chips fell. Right. Um, or like, as we're, as we're to understand it, um, if he wants, if he had wanted to come back and the reason he's not a brave is on the Braves and not him in a manner of speaking, I, I'm not with the booing, you know, like I'm, I'm on the side of like, you know, respect and appreciate what he did for you, especially like in the first game back, you know, if it's like the world series or something, right? Like, yeah, boo him. It's, this is like title time, but like the first game back, whatever. I felt the same way with like Al Horford. I mean, granted Al Horford didn't get a ring in Atlanta, but Al Horford leaving the Hawks wasn't like a, uh, Al Horford hated the city kind of thing. Um, Al Horford was a consummate professional his entire time with the Hawks. I don't think he should get booed when he comes back to Atlanta. Now you take a player like Kyrie Irving and, uh, you put him back in Boston. Like, 
I mean, granted, he wasn't with Boston for very long. But, like, a player like that that leaves on bad terms, that, like, clearly didn't care about the city. Uh, well, or well, let's let's use Kyrie as an example. If Kyrie's playing in Cleveland, do you think they should boo him? Or do you think that, that they should cheer for him? I would boo him. Uh, he specifically wanted out so he could be the man. Uh, like, that was what he said he wanted to be the top dog on a team he was actually putting himself above a team so uh, so so even though he made that that shot was instrumental in that team in the city getting that championship after so long it's still like no love lost yeah i mean at that point you know you respect the shot you appreciate the shot it it's the reason that Cleveland has that championship. But at the same time, it's one thing for him to just kind of leave Cleveland. It's another th- uh, thing for that to be the reason and for him to come out and say, like, this is why, you know, I don't want to be Le- second fiddle to LeBron. who's already the king of Cleveland. <laughs> like, um, no pun intended. But it really comes down to, you know, how invested was the player during his or her time there and on what terms did he leave? You take like Steve Nash leaving Phoenix. He gave everything to that city. It, it's not his fault they didn't win a championship or anything. And by the time he leaves to go to LA, he's like 38 years old. He has back problems that keep him out of like at least a third of the games anyway. We know that he's not going to push Phoenix for another ring or for a ring. And this is his chance to like make a push for a ring. And I think he was really well received when he went back to Phoenix, like with the Lakers. And I think that's basically like how I would gauge it. So if a, a player's with one team in, in one city for a long period of time, and then they go like ring chasing at the end of their career, but they like gave everything, then in your mind, definitely appreciate that player and say, you know what? You did all you can go for it. I hope you get your ring somewhere else. Especially if the situation is such that the player wasn't going to reasonably win a ring in that city. Like, when I think about Steve Nash, like, the way Phoenix had gone down in his last few years and the way his health was declining, they weren't going to put a championship team together in his era. I guess, like, what I'm thinking about is if you have a player who's still, like, among the best in the NBA— and whose team is like still making the playoffs and then he jumps ship to ring chase. Like that's different because it leaves the fans thinking like, oh, we had a chance every year, but then you just ditched us to like take the easy route. Whereas like with Nash, for example, it clearly wasn't happening. And if he had spent his last three years in Phoenix, like nothing would have changed. For it would have just boosted his Phoenix numbers. <laughs> like what's that doing? Yeah. Well, and there is something to be said about the one franchise player, uh, the one team player, which I still think is a really cool thing and a really special thing. Um, And like, for instance, like I will always have um, a special place for Chipper. Um, I'll be a Braves fan forever. He will always be special to me because he never left his entire career and he only won that that championship at the beginning 
of his career with the Braves, but he stuck all the way through. And I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, if he had left, then it's one thing, but I'll always view Chipper and Freddie differently because Chipper stuck it out and was a Brave and was never anything else. And Freddie's now like a member of the Dodgers, which is one of the worst teams that he could have gone to, uh, in my opinion. So it's just interesting to to think about um, and something that we see like fairly often in multiple sports. So thank you for uh, for that. And once we come back, we will get into uh, breaking down the NBA draft and handing out some superlatives. So stick around. All right, we are back and it's time to give out some superlatives as has become tradition on the Mike and Dave podcast after the draft. So Mike's going to kick off uh, the award ceremony with uh, giving out our superlative for best needs addressed. And this is a team award. Mike, who wins this one for you? I'm excited about saying this, even though it's not Atlanta. Sorry. Because how often do I get to brag about Detroit doing something right? I didn't even have to specify in sports. Just like in general, when does Detroit do anything right nowadays? But the Pistons nailed this. Like, I mean, step one was having Sacramento not draft Jaden Ivey so that they could at five. I mean, brilliant right there. Uh, You get to pair Jaden Ivey. Suffice it to say, I would have taken him earlier than five if I were drafting in this class. But whatever. He falls to five. You get him. You get to pair him next to last year's number one pick in Cade Cunningham, who had a solid rookie year. Like, boom. Backcourt. Like, if you can keep those two, you're talking backcourt for years to come. Okay. But they're not done there. They they trade in this three-team trade with the Knicks and the Hornets, and they get the number uh, 13 pick, uh, Jalen Duran, who we talked about on episode 31 as a great prospect at center. All it really cost them was like a first rounder next year and a first rounder in 2025. Um, they're going to technically they get Kemba Walker and that they're just going to do a buyout. Don't worry about that. But they get Jalen Duran and, you know, they were looking at him with their fifth pick had Jaden Ivey not been available. So they get two guys that they wanted at five and those, those two future picks, you know, if you were willing to get, if you were willing to grab a guy at five, that's worth it to give up those two firsts that might not even amount to a top 10 pick. Shoot. You get what could be your center for years to come, your point guard for years to come. You have your shooting guard for years to come. Sadiq Bay is a great part of that core at small forward. Isaiah Stewart, you can move him to the four he's shown a little bit of promise shooting uh but he's a tenacious rebounder he can switch uh he can play switch defense like all of a sudden detroit walks away from this draft with their core starting lineup like how how do you do better than that if you're detroit i mean you kind of got screwed by the lottery gods when you you fell to five when you were supposed to be getting a top three pick but they come out of this draft as winners to me I don't know what I could have done better for him. Yeah, I agree. Pistons did, did a, a very good job. I think one of the clear winners of the draft, uh, pairing Jaden Ivey with Katie Cunningham is a really good one-two duo. And then getting Duran uh, to slot in at that center spot makes a lot of sense as well. So I agree. Um, however, I'm not going to pick them. I'm going to pick a different team. And that's the Houston Rockets. 
So you could argue that the Rockets needed everything. So like, how can they best address their need um, when they didn't really like when everything's a need, right? But what I'll argue is they just needed talent, not only talent, but they needed talent that could potentially grow into, you know, a cornerstone for their team. And I think that they achieved that in this draft. They got three first rounders. Um, They drafted two on their own and then they traded for uh, number 29. So of course they drafted Jabari Smith at number three, who they were probably pretty surprised to see that was still there. He immediately upgrades their shooting um, and will be another really good option uh, along with Jalen Green um, on offense, as well as immediately becoming along with Jay Sean Tate, their, uh, their best perimeter defender. Speaking of perimeter defense, at number 17, they get Tari Eason, who you know that we were fairly high on um, coming into this. He's another guy who doesn't necessarily have to have the ball to make an impact. Um, you can get guys like Jalen Green, like Jabari Smith, like Kevin Porter Jr. even, um, who are going to be more on the ball and have Tari Eason be more of that uh, perimeter defender for you. Um, cutter, all of that. I like his fit there. It makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, we were not kind to Ty Ty Washington in our NBA draft uh, or NBA mock draft that we did. But still, getting him at number twenty nine and uh, in that trade, I think makes a lot of sense for them. It's insurance, depending on how Kevin Porter Jr. does. I feel like he's still a bit of a wild card, even though he had a good season last year. Um, getting another like true point guard uh, to to pair with all these guys, especially that late in the first round, I think makes a lot of sense. So sure, they didn't have a ton of like obvious needs, but I think their just big need was just adding as much talent as possible uh, to to pair with Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr., especially after that Christian Wood trade. And I think that they managed to do that with those uh, first three selections in the first round. Yeah, I definitely like the Rockets, and I had them up on my list in terms of teams that did really well in this draft. So not a surprise to see you uh, put them there. And yeah, you're right. If When you need everything, then no matter who you get, you're addressing a need in theory. Of course, I was sad to see Tari Eason not go to the Hawks. But of course, like you said, we were high on him. Of course, he's gonna. that's a great pick for them. In regards to like the other way we might gauge success for a team, Dave, who do you think did the best job as like a value shopper in this draft? I was preparing for this and I was thinking about it and I'd, I ended up going with a team that I did not think I was going to go with. I have written in my notes, the Pelicans? Four, four question marks. Um, so I'm going to go with the New Orleans Pelicans. And uh, the big reasons for that is getting EJ Liddell at number 41 um, out of Ohio State. He's a guy who we had going in the first round in our mock, who was going in the first round in most of the mock drafts that were out there, um, who had a really good season at Ohio State um, at power forward. It's a guy who I think could come in and contribute right away. Getting him at number 41, I think, makes a lot of sense, especially with, like, you never know what you're going to get out of Zion. Is he even going to play? AJ Liddell can give you some quality minutes at that power forward position. So I really like that. And then, of course, their uh, first-round selection at number eight 
They drafted Dyson Daniels, who um, at number eight, you could argue like maybe that's about where he should have been selected. But I think that the potential for this guy is really high. Um, I know that like Shadon Sharp is the same thing, but um, Dyson Daniels was very impressive with the G League Ignite. Um, His defensive profile, his athleticism, um, his ability to, I think, just fit in with that Pelicans team as currently built um, is really nice. So I think that they that they drafted the best possible guy that they could at number eight. And then at 41, they did the same thing. So uh, there were there were a few other teams. I don't know which one Mike's going to pick, but um, I'm going to go with the Pelicans for for the best value shopper in this draft. Yeah, I um I do like that. We'll see you know, how I feel about New Orleans basketball. We'll see how many of them stick around, how many of them are mismanaged, but plenty of potential on that roster, especially in Dyson Daniels to be like one of the like next generation elite defenders. So I like in terms of just the night in a vacuum, I like what the Pelicans did. Now my value shopper is actually the Memphis Grizzlies. Now I'm looking at the three players they walk away with. They get Jake LaRavia at 19. Um, Maybe a couple picks higher than I would have guessed, but I feel like he fits their team. So, I mean, that's a a little bit more like needs addressed. But then I look at like David Roddy at 23. Again, earlier than a lot of mocks had him, but the fact that they traded up for him tells me like this is the guy they wanted. Um, And just watching him on film from Colorado state, like that's going, that has potential to be a really, really good pick. And then Kennedy Chandler at 38, that's the real like steal for them. When I'm looking at this draft, the fact that Jaden Hardy went 37 and then Kennedy Chandler went right after him at 38. Both of these are guys that we had in our first round as like two of the better guards coming out. Um, Like to get Chandler at 38, when he can, realistically slide in as John Morant's backup to replace Tyus Jones. That's a great pick in the second round. All three of these guys fit the uh, Grizzlies culture. They're versatile. They're tough. They're, they're gritty. I mean, you got to use gritty with Memphis, right? Uh, So the way I'm looking at this is like, you don't really, they didn't really give up that much to trade up for David Roddy. They get uh, their like potential long-term solution at backup point guard. And at least for the next like few years, in Kennedy Chandler in the second round, these are three guys that can plug in really quickly and to get that out of a draft without any like lottery selections. That's really good shopping. I agree with, with that statement. I don't know if I, if I agree that it was the best value. Um, I would not have been surprised. And of course we don't know exactly what's going on in NBA front offices and stuff. I would not be surprised if Jake LaRavia, David Roddy were there when they were supposed to select them anyway. Um, so I don't know if that's necessarily the most valuable like shopping, but I agree. Kennedy Chandler, I was looking at that and I was like, that is a really good pickup for them uh, in the second round. A guy who was originally like uh, one of the top recruits coming out of high school um, and still had a really good season. I think there's just some size questions with him. Um, barely over six feet tall. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think that makes them a good value shopper, but, um, 
Roddy and Jake Laravia. Maybe they'll prove me wrong, um, but I thought they went a little bit higher than what I was expecting. All right, now moving on to our next superlative, which is the classic most likely to succeed. Mike, who are you giving that superlative to? So I kind of went back and forth between a couple guys for this award. Here's what I'll say. Ochai Abaji, you know I was high on in episode 31, and I still am. I think that he's among the most NBA-ready right now. So he's the most likely to succeed immediately. And who would have thought I would have said that about a player getting drafted by Cleveland? Like, what is happening in the world today? I'm saying good things about Detroit. Cleveland is a good situation. Ugh, so weird. Yeah, so I'm looking at Oshai Abaji just because I think he is the most NBA-ready and he can slide right in there with what they're doing in Cleveland pretty seamlessly and contribute very early on in a, in a significant way. But I also wanted to mention Benedict Matherin just because I think he lands in a great situation in Indiana and he has the potential, he has more potential to be a star than Ochai Abaji. Ochai Abaji can be like a solid role player um, for his entire career, but Benedict Matherin has that star capacity and going to a place like Indiana where he'll be coached by Rick Carlisle, like fantastic landing spot. And the fact that he's not going to have immediate pressure to be like the baller, like to me, those are both uh, most like they're the most likely to succeed in those like different trajectories, I guess. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Most likely to succeed right away with Abaji and then just being in a really good landing spot. I think he fits or Matherin fits really well with uh, Tyrese Halliburton, Chris Duarte and that young core that they're building there in Indiana. Um, as far as who I'm picking for most likely to succeed, I'm going with Jalen Williams on the Thunder. Which one? Well, that's just it. I figure (laughs) I have two bites at the cherry. So that's, so if you have two guys named Jalen Williams on the Thunder, then that gives you twice as much opportunities to succeed. That's the extent of my analysis. No, actually that was just a joke. Um, I do think that they, you know, they'll have their opportunities on the Thunder and all of that, but that's not actually who I'm picking. I'm going with Jaden Ivey uh, for a lot of the same reasons that we were talking about before. I think he is a great fit next to Cade Cunningham. Like you couldn't really ask for a better fit next to him. Um, he'll be able to to play with Cade doesn't necessarily have to have the ball in his hands all the time. He's not necessarily going to be that pure playmaking point guard type. Uh, so Cade can can run the offense. Jaden Ivey, he does have to, I think, improve his shooting a little bit, and he'll have opportunities to do so uh, in Detroit. But as a cutter, Cade Cunningham will be able to use his vision there. And then, of course, defensively, he'll be able to guard the, opponent, uh, the opposing team's point guard uh, and Cunningham can be stuck on a wing, which probably uh, is where he's best suited defensively as well. So I think Ivy, it just makes a whole lot of sense for me. So he's my most likely to succeed um, out of this draft. And I will say what I love about the pairing of Jaden Ivy and Cade Cunningham is that Cunningham does play with that more like methodical, a bit slower pace 
sort of like Luca in that, you know, he like takes his time. He just does his thing in the half court, whereas Jaden Ivey can push it all the way down at a, at a faster pace. And that lets the, uh, that lets the Pistons like control the game in a couple different ways and like play at which, whichever pace suits them at the time. So I do. Yeah. I agree. That is a great, a great fit. Yeah. And that's, that's a really good point too, that I, I didn't mention is uh, being able to switch it up and you could just, you know, if Jaden Ivey gets the rebound or the quick outlet pass to him, they can be down the other end of the court in a blink of an eye, or you just slow the game down with Kate if you need to, if you got the lead in the, you know, third, fourth quarter, um, and just, you know, see the game out that way. I think that makes a lot of sense and gives them options. Yeah. I'll tell you, I'll be watching a decent amount of Pistons games this season. That's for sure. <laughs> you haven't always been able to say that either. So <laughs> no, I haven't. Now, now to be a little bit more harsh, we've got the player least likely to succeed. Dave, who you got for this one? Let's be critics. Yeah, well, I'm never going to be shy of, of criticizing certain things. Um, this one is a little interesting because it is contingent on something happening. Uh, I'm going with Johnny Davis uh, on the Wizards. If Bradley Beal ends up re-signing, which apparently signs are, are pointing to to him declining his player option and then signing a massive extension with the Wizards, then I think Johnny Davis does fall into the least likely to succeed category because he's really like just going to f- fulfill that same type. Like he's the same type of player as Bradley Beal is. Um, I just don't see them playing together super well. Uh, Johnny Davis really needs to improve his three-point shot. In the He mostly dominates in the mid-range. And Beal's going to have the ball a lot of the time. Um, Davis is not really going to be a huge threat from three. Um, and maybe like if he comes off the bench, then that then he could be a decent option for the Wizards. But, I mean, you drafted this guy top 10, you'd hopefully be getting a starter out of that and not, you know, a, a sixth man or your bench, you know, a bench player. So if, if Beal ends up leaving, then I would change this pick uh, because then he's going to be able to have a lot more of the ball. He's going to be able to, um, to, you know, get his own shot, all of that. But since I think Beal probably will return, I think that they could have gone a different direction with this pick. They could have, potentially gotten a center they could have gotten um you know a, a better shooter or or even a you know a, a point guard to to pair with Bradley Beal not necessarily another shooting guard yeah I think that makes a lot of sense I mean it it did feel a little bit like this was a uh, just in case type of pick like oh we got to get someone good at 10 that could be a star if we needed him to be but if you don't need him to be Bradley Beal 2.0 what's he gonna do there now, my uh, least likely to succeed is Tyrese Martin. Okay, no. <laughs> I, you know, I am going to give a more bold one than the 51st overall pick, but when we got him, I was just like, oh, yeah, uh, a shooting guard that, like, you know, looks like he could be okay. We drafted Skylar Mays in 2020, and he's played in all of 61, like, already decided games. And I 
and no one could care less. Like what, what, what's he going to do? But now for my bold one. Wait, wait, actually one more. Ty Ty Washington. Ha. I'm not done. Okay. The bold one is Chet Holmgren. Now, the reason that I'm saying that, because I didn't just say like, oh, let me just say something and move on with my life. I'm looking at this brittle, brittle man who is skinnier than I am somehow. I mean, like proportionately speaking. And I'm worried about injuries. Um, But it's not just that. Here's here's where my mind is at. And and I want to be proven wrong. Okay, I'm not like saying, oh, I hope this kid's career is like a failure. Just to say that first before I get called a hater. When when You're I was watching that, okay, well, I said before I get called a hater, and you said that afterwards. So I'm looking at the NBA Finals from this past season. If you put Chet Holmgren on either of those rosters, how many minutes does he actually play? I feel like he would have gotten played off the court. He can rim protect. He's not a switch. He can't move laterally to guard a lot of these guys. I I wonder about how efficiently he'll shoot the ball um, without like, like if teams are more willing to like move out on him. I, I think about how like Rudy Gobert was taken advantage of because he couldn't switch onto more perimeter perimeter oriented players. And, Chet isn't the rim projector that Gobert is. I don't know that he's a sharpshooter and like enough of a sharpshooter to like justify that potential like perimeter liability. I don't think that Chet Holmgren is going to be a bad player. I don't. I think in the regular season he'll be fine. I'm worried about him in the postseason. I'm worried about what his uh like clutch fit is going to be. I'm worried about his versatility or lack thereof. I. I don't know. That's something that he, that he can certainly prove me wrong on. That's something that he can adjust. That's something that coaching can make up for. But right now, that is my primary concern for Chet Holmgren. I think that's there are some valid points in there, but it's definitely harsh. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, sure, if you put him on either of those two teams, like would he be a big factor? I don't know, maybe, but also like he's extremely young. Like when Giannis came into the league, he, and you put, and you put him on one of those teams, he wouldn't have been a, a big factor. Um, I, I mean, to be honest, I see a lot of Giannis in Chet Holmgren. Like Giannis was a super skinny kid from Greece when he got drafted into the NBA. Obviously like he's an outlier, right? Like he's an exception to the rule, but you, people are saying the same thing about Chet Holmgren. Like, He's also an outlier, an exception to the rule, because he has a a variety of skill sets that you don't really see from a guy who's as tall as he is. Um, I would be surprised if he continues to be as skinny um, for for the rest of his career. Maybe he will be, but also like you look at a guy like Kevin Durant, who does not have much. Like he's just like a stick, right? But he can still do ever like do whatever he he needs to do. Um, it really, in my mind, the biggest, um, like, yes, he needs to add weight. He also needs to prove that he can be a very um, reliable knockdown shooter as well. Because even if he's, you know, he's overmatched um, defensively sometimes um, and can get pushed around, if you've got a guy like that who's 
you know, splashing like 37, 38% from three out there, then that's just, that causes all sorts of, of problems. So moving on to the next superlative biggest riser, Mike, who do you have for that one? Well, let me express my shock that Musa Diabate actually got drafted 43rd. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, didn't I didn't know that he'd get drafted at all, but okay. But really, uh, I'm looking at Christian Braun getting drafted at 21. I thought he would be like a uh, early second rounder. He was a solid contributor for Kansas. Like, don't get me wrong, he was he was great. Um, I'm wondering, like, you know, we've we've had like complaints about you know oh we wish his shooting could be better um will his like style of play translate to today's nba but the nuggets that that was their guy i guess they they grabbed him at 21 i was expecting him around 33 34 to me that was like one of the bigger rises that i saw that and uh jeremy sohan what i wouldn't say like was a huge rise like number wise seeing him go nine like inside the top 10 to me was a big deal as well i have a couple of guys here as well who i think rose on draft night but also just over the course of the year maybe weren't even really talked about in conversations at all to be drafted and then ended up going um in the top 20 so one of them is jake laravia who we've talked a little bit about already i mean this is a guy who did not get much interest coming out of college. Um, went to Indiana State and did all right there. Um, and then uh, as a soft, after his sophomore year, transferred to Wake Forest and then kind of blossomed out of nowhere. Uh, 15 points, six and a half rebounds, a little under four assists, uh, 1.7 steals and a block. Uh, I mean, this is a guy who was able to contribute all around comes to Wake Forest, improves on all of his numbers um, there, like in his one season, and ends up going 19th. Like that's a that's a really big riser to me. I was also thinking he would maybe go in the 20s, like late 20s, but he cracked the top 20, so he's got to be mentioned. Um, and then also Jalen Williams, J-A-L-E-N, the one who got drafted 12th um, for the Thunder. I mean, this is another guy, like very lightly scouted, like coming out of high school, was not a, a um, on anybody's radar really. And over the course of the season, um, with his his playmaking, um, his scoring, like leading that Santa Clara team, especially when they were playing Gonzaga and just looking like he like he belonged, like he fit in with all the Gonzaga players, um, he just continued to rise and rise and rise. Even like early in the season, he was potentially going like, you know, late second round. And then he had an amazing combine, really good interviews and rose all the way up to pick number 12. I mean, this closest to like, this is close to a top 10 player in the draft. And he wasn't even really being talked about before the season as being drafted at all. So I think he's got to be mentioned as a biggest riser as well. Uh I don't really want to pick between because they, they're they very similar uh, in their story, but I'm going to have them share the superlative from me as the biggest risers. Okay. Yeah. Um, we had talked about Jake LaRavia a little bit earlier, but Jalen Williams, yeah, the uh, the way he rose just in the past few months especially is like the really crazy part to me. Like 
just all of a sudden every mock that comes out he's climbing higher and higher until it yeah 12 was higher than we even saw there so yeah good on him now let's go the opposite direction i feel like i'm just the one like let's get negative again but uh dave who fell the hardest on draft night once again i have a couple of players who are um it's kind of very similar to the biggest riser actually um Jaden hardy and kennedy chandler i mean these guys got drafted um one pick apart Kings drafted Jaden Hardy at number 37, traded him to the Mavericks. Spurs drafted Kennedy Chandler at number 38, traded him to the Grizzlies. These were two guys who I think probably deserved to go in the first round. And especially based on their pedigree. I mean, I mentioned this earlier, like Kennedy Chandler was one of the top prospects um, coming out of last year. I mean, he was a consensus top 10 player in the high school class of 2021 McDonald's All-American, all of that. And then Jaden Hardy. I mean, this is a guy who I think could potentially be one of the steals of the draft. He did not have the best, most efficient season on the G League Ignite, but people forget like Jaden Hardy and Shadon Sharp were like neck and neck. They were, uh, you know, regarded as like similar level prospects. Sharp goes to Kentucky and doesn't play a single game. Hardy competes in the G League Ignite, doesn't have the best numbers. Sharp goes seventh. Hardy goes 37th. Like, it's just kind of hard to to see how this guy gets punished for going, like for, for actually going and competing and playing in the G League against uh, professionals. Um, I would have, especially before the season, he was being talked about as a lottery pick. So falling out of the first round entirely is pretty crazy. And just to, for the sharp Hardy comparison, I'm not saying that like they're the same prospect at all. Um, sharp is definitely more physically gifted, a lot more balanced, all of that, but Hardy's a really like dangerous scorer who can get hot, uh, really quickly. And I think, uh, I'll be very interested to see how, how he does. Um, but I was pretty surprised to see both of these guys fall into the second round, uh, maybe I could see like one of them falling, but both of them falling and even lasting until like 37, 38. Um, and, and like Caleb Houston going ahead of the Max Christie going ahead. Um, like I just thought that was, that was interesting. So th- those are my two biggest fallers. Yeah. The two of those guards, I definitely thought would go first round. We had them both going first round in our mock Kennedy Chandler, definitely getting punished for being six feet. Just think if Kennedy Chandler had the exact same season, exact same stats, but was six three, like he'd probably be a lottery pick. Instead, he goes to thirty eight, which is crazy. And then Jaden Hardy, same, like it's also wild. Now, you mentioned this guy earlier, but EJ Liddell going forty one to me is the big faller here. Um, this is a guy I was expecting to see around seventeen, eighteen. Uh, to see him go midway through the, uh, see him go midway through the second round is just absurd. And then, and I think part of that is just because like he did have a much improved season at Ohio State, and his game translates to today's NBA. It wasn't like one of those, like when we think of Luca Garza, for example. Um, having a great season in college, but then asking, well, yeah, but that he has more of a college game. 
Uh, we don't know like what success he'll find. EJ Liddell seems to be the type that you kind of plug in on an NBA roster and just expect him to do well. Uh, the fact that he went 41 was just shocking. But I'm also going to say something about a player for the exact like inverse of what I was talking about with Jeremy Sohan, and that's AJ Griffin falling out of the top 10. I read or watched conservatively 25 mock drafts uh, in the past like couple months. I think the lowest I ever saw AJ Griffin going was like 11. He goes 16 to the Hawks. Like I would say 95% of the drafts I looked at or watched had him going eight to the Pelicans. I think that was like the like consensus expectation there. And so to, to fall, not just to 16, he's fallen out of the lottery. Uh, and he lands in the Hawks lap. I mean, I'll admit I wasn't like stoked about it because I'm, you know, paranoid about the injury history. But still, I thought someone earlier would overlook that or or like decide that it was worth it because of the upside. The upside's there if he stays on the court. Uh, if if A.J. Griffin stays healthy, this is a steal of the draft, I think. But we get him at 16 for what many thought was a top 10 pick, or a top 10 talent, rather. So these two, for those two different reasons, are my biggest followers. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mentioned E.J. Liddell before, and... When AJ Griffin was there, when the Hawks were selecting, I was kind of, I kind of had a feeling that we were going to grab him. It just made a lot of sense uh, for what the Hawks needed. And I know Mike was not the most thrilled, especially in the moment with who we selected, but I think talent wise, he was probably the best available. And, you know, obviously the injuries, it's, it's one of those things you just hope that it doesn't continue and being a part of uh, an NBA team with their, um, with their trainers, with their nutrition regimen, like all of those things, like you, you just hope that that'll, um, that'll help that. But uh, I, I agree with those two. Um, those were probably the other two that I would have considered. I know with this next one, we kind of went different directions. Now to clarify, Dave and I don't know each other's picks necessarily. But I do know that we went in a different direction in terms of the type of person we decided for this next quote-unquote award. And this uh, superlative is who's under the most pressure. And I went the GM route. Now, for the life of me, I can't decide between these two, so I'm just going to keep it short on both of them the explanation is basically the same um and i want you guys to tell me who's under more pressure here we got two gms from the west we got monty mcnair gm from uh for the kings and we have justin zanuck gm for the jazz and with both of these teams i'm just confused i i really don't understand like exactly how they plan on accomplishing their goals that they've like put out uh the kings say they want to be competitive in the playoffs they want to like have competitive series when they don't even make the playoffs um the we know that the jazz want to like cross that that threshold i feel like the jazz just historically always have these teams where they're like they're never shitty but they never like win the finals either they just have great regular seasons and then just fizzle out in the playoffs we've been seeing this with the jazz year after year after year 
Uh, I talked earlier about Rudy Gobert getting exposed. There were trade rumors. They don't pull the trigger on a trade because they were asking like crazy high asking prices of every team they talked to. They don't get a deal done. They walk away from this draft with like no new talent. There's it looks like they're going to be dragging more or less the same roster unless they make some weird splash in free agency, which it's Utah. So good luck. And then Sacramento is like notorious for having poor player development systems. They, they basically just get lucky if they draft a guy that's star ready already De'Aaron Fox. They also don't make a trade. We had seen rumors that they might pursue something with Atlanta for John Collins. Instead, they go the route of Keegan Murray. Uh, so they're going to run with him and Sabonis. Of course, last year they traded Tyrese Halliburton, breaking probably my number one rule of trading. Don't trade someone that wants to be there, especially if you're in a shitty market. Like, And if you're Sacramento, I don't mean shitty because it's California. I mean, no one wants to go to Sacramento to play basketball. If you're moving to, L- if you're moving to California, you're going to ring chase on Golden State or go to LA. No one's going to the Kings. And... And so both of these teams are out of their coaches. Quinn Snyder has stepped down in Utah. Uh, They don't have a head coach yet. The Kings' solution is Mike Brown, who's never been independently successful. He's only found success with star players like LeBron or Kobe on the team. What are these guys doing? I would agree. (laughs) Yeah, I I went the complete opposite route uh, for the superlative. I went with a player who honestly I really don't know how you could be under more pressure than this guy. I mean, when your name is one letter away from the back-to-back reigning MVP <laughs> and you get drafted to the number 1 seed in the Eastern Conference for this past season. I mean, just think about it. Nikola Jovic. He's got to live up to the name. He's got to make sure that he fits into the Heat's culture, which is infamous, right? Like you, like if you're not willing to work, if you're not like basketball is my only thing that I care about type of vibe, you're not going to fit in there. That's a lot of pressure to be under. You're like, okay, I got to work really, really hard to be accepted in this place. Um, I mean, all those things kind of are true, but that's not actually my pick. Um, he is under some pressure, but not as much as the number one overall pick. Can I just add one thing before we shift off the heat? Yeah. Eric Spolster doesn't give a damn. Like when Duncan Robinson's play started slipping, they started paying him 18 million a year to watch the game from the sideline. Like he doesn't care. You got to show up if you're Jovic. That's true. So like, it's kind of a joke, but also like, yes, he is actually under pressure. Um, also like making the transition from Europe to the NBA as a first round pick, et cetera, et cetera. Regardless, I'm going with Paolo Bencaro, the number one overall selection. And I think with that number one, like being the number one overall pick, that is the most pressure that you can be under as a player. You are, like being selected number one overall means not only are you like just the next in the line of some of the greatest players that have ever played the sport, but also you're you're viewed as the best player in the draft. You're viewed as you should be uh you should win rookie of the year. You should be the savior of the franchise that that drafted you, idolized by the kids in the city that you're playing in. Uh I mean, you're expected to 
to be great with the media, to uh, to fill all of the hopes and dreams of that fan base, of that organization, and just do it right away and be immediately successful. And going to the Magic, and especially as a guy who wasn't expected to be the number one overall pick until like 10 minutes before the draft started, with all of that conversation of these, there are these top three guys who who's the best, who should go number one overall, when Jabari Smith... Uh, didn't get picked and Boncaro did, he's under a lot of pressure to do better than Jabari Smith. He's under a lot of pressure to like to go out and, and win rookie of the year, to be like immediately come in and be the guy in Orlando right away. Now, does he have the ability to do that? He probably does. Um he's got a lot of talent, especially on the offensive end. Defensively, I'm still uh hesitant about him, but I mean, he has some playmaking chops. He can definitely shoot. He can score. But as far as who's under the most pressure, I think it's got to be him, both because he's the number one overall pick, but also because he's a surprise number one pick that always, you know, immediately puts a lot of pressure on your shoulders. Because you certainly don't want to be the next Anthony Bennett. When we look back at the last like 10 years or so, I would say more often than not, the, uh, the number one pick has not been the best player in the draft. Usually it's like the number two, number three player. So, you know, we also want, like if you're the number one pick, you also want to be part of breaking that trend and proving that the number one pick is worth it, right? So, yeah, I agree with that. Now, if you're a longtime listener of the show, as in for the past year, you know that we love fantasy sports. So, of course, we're going to close out our superlatives with the best rookies to draft. Uh, going into fantasy basketball season next season. So Dave, of all the rookies that we just saw drafted, who do you think will be the best fantasy rookie? Volume is king in fantasy. Um, Really, regardless of what sport you're talking about, you need a guy who's going to be getting a lot of opportunities. So in my mind, I'm really only looking at the first few picks in the draft uh, because you know that these guys are going to see a lot of playing time. They're going to be able to get shots up. They're going to play an important role for their team. So really I'm, I'm between a couple of players here. Um, and those players are the number one and the number two overall picks in the draft. Uh, I know Mike's a little bit like lower and not quite sure if Holmgren can succeed. I know that big men, a lot of times can be the most valuable players in fantasy if you can get a guy who can average a couple blocks a game, who can hit, you know, at least one, maybe two threes a game at a reasonable clip, um, who has decent playmaking chops, like you're getting a center. And of course he'll be able to grab some boards being freaking as tall as he is. Like you have a guy who's going to be able to contribute in multiple areas. And depending on what kind of league that you're playing in, whether that's, a, a rotisserie league, whether it's head-to-head points, um, head-to-head categories, et cetera, et cetera. I think Holmgren is a guy who can help you in multiple, multiple areas. But then also looking at Boncaro, um, he's going to get a lot of points. He's going to grab a decent, like a decent amount of rebounds and also like some assists for you as well. He's going to be able to get a lot of shots up. I think he he's going to get the volume. And like I said, I think volume is 
the most important thing. And I think Holmgren, even if he's not scoring as much, he's going to be able to give you stats in other areas. And Boncaro is probably going to put up the most shots um, of any of uh, of these uh, draft picks. Yeah, so I definitely like Paolo Boncaro for that. Uh, when I look at the Magic's roster, you know, it's not like they have a, a super high usage guy that they are going to prioritize over Paolo Boncaro. What, are they going to put Cole Anthony higher on the pecking order there? No, he's going to have the ball a lot. Um, I sort of went a different route, although I'm going to say, like, to what you were saying about the different types of leagues, if you're playing in more of a uh, head-to-head categories type of league, then I might go the route of a Jabari Smith, uh, someone that can knock down threes for you, but then also step in and get rebounds. He doesn't have to compete with Christian Wood, who the Rockets have traded away. Uh, So he's going to get a decent amount of rebounds. I think the ball will swing to him. He'll get a couple assists a game. He has the defensive capacity to get steals and blocks. I think he can contribute in all five major categories, all the while not necessarily being a risk to turn the ball over a lot. So he comes off as like a more efficient player. However, if Jalen Duran and or Mark Williams are starting, then I'm looking at them. Because like you said, big men tend to do well in fantasy because they're going to get a lot of rebounds and they're going to take largely efficient shots. Uh, so they're gonna, not going to lose you points on missed attempts, especially at the three-point line. Uh, they're going to get a lot of dunks. They're going to get a lot of rebounds. They'll get blocks, right? And they're going to limit their turnovers. So I'm looking at either of those as being efficient options. I don't know where Charlotte ranks Mark Williams among the likes of, like, Kai Jones. <laughs> um, but assuming the Pistons go ahead and just start Duran at center, I'm going to go with him as my guy over the with the asterisk that if Mark Williams starts and Duran doesn't, go ahead and grab Mark Williams instead. But for my money right now, I'll go Duran. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And with that, that wraps up our uh, superlatives for the 2022 NBA draft. And when we come back, we've got some breaking news involving a trade to the Atlanta Hawks. So stick around for our live reaction to that. All right, so around the time of the draft, Dave and I were talking, like, are the Hawks going to pull the trigger on any of these trade rumors? You know, we'd heard some reports about John Collins potentially being on the move. We had heard some reports about there being an interest in DeJounte Murray. Well, the latter just came true. The Hawks have traded not one, not two, but three first-round picks and a pick swap for DeJounte Murray. Oh, sorry, and Danilo Gallinari for DeJounte Murray. And I'm excited about it. Um, I know that it's a, you know, it's a heavy price, uh, all those first rounders. But my thing is like, whenever you draft a player, we can hope and assume, you know, what the player is going to be, but we don't know. That's, that's why busts exist, but we know what DeJounte Murray is. Uh, he was an all-star last year. He, we had talked on this podcast about the great year that he was having uh, for the Spurs. And I think his play style will complement Trey Young's. Uh, not necessarily like the best combination of all time, but what, what I'm looking at here is, one, someone that can take playmaking responsibilities away from Trey Young. At select moments, you know, we still want Trey Young to be the guy. 
but it doesn't have to be every possession initiated by Trey Young. And more importantly, we have an elite caliber defensive guard now that can guard the opposing team's best guard. Uh, that's why I'm super excited about this. We have a defensive star in the backcourt now and an offensive superstar in the backcourt. Like on both sides of the ball, we have elite talent there. Yeah, I think, well, like you said, it's a lot to give up the three first rounders 20, 2023 via Charlotte, which that one I'm not too sad about giving up. If it didn't convey, it was I think it's lottery protected. If it didn't convey next year, then I think it turned into two second rounders. But in terms of the rest, the 2025 first round pick, unprotected. 2027 first round pick, unprotected. And then there's also a 2026 pick swap where the Spurs will get to pick whichever higher pick there is uh, between theirs and the Hawks. So it definitely is a lot to give up, but I mean, DeJounte Murray, he's still, uh, he's still a very young player. He hasn't even really gotten into his prime yet. I mean, getting paid $16.6 million this season, $17.7 million next year, and then he'll be a unrestricted free agent. Um, so we get two years of Murray. We give up Gallinari, who was probably not going to be able to stay on the roster anyway because of his salary. I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about it. Um, I feel like even if the pick swap wasn't included, then I would feel a little bit better. It just It's a lot of future draft capital to give up. When I don't know that the Hawks will be able to afford both Trey Young and DeJounte Murray when his contract ends. And we don't exactly know how Murray's going to fit next to Trey Young after fulfilling a very ball dominant role with San Antonio. Uh, but at the same time, you've got two guys who can really handle the ball. It doesn't have to be Trey Young, like Mike said, uh, initiating every possession. Maybe we can get Trey into more of those Steph Curry or Duncan Robinson, Kyle Korver, those types of players. Maybe we can get them, him into some more off-ball actions, try to get him some open looks for three. So I don't know. There are a lot of questions to me, but at the same time, the Hawks were not happy with how the season went last year. I know we as fans were not happy with how it went. And they went out and made their move, and they may not be done. John Collins apparently is still very much out there on the trade block. Um, you know, Clint Capella could potentially be moved as well, depending on um, who's interested. Uh, Kevin Herter is now expendable uh, because Murray's going to be starting at the two. So you've got Herter and Bogdanovich at that shooting guard position coming off the bench. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how uh, the rest of the offseason shakes out. But Mike, all that considered, um, what grade would you give the Hawks on this trade? I've got to go around B+. It's, it's not an A because of all of what they gave up. And we have to see, you know, what, like how... We have to see how the pairing of DeJounte Murray and Trey Young ends up looking on the court. But in theory, I like it. It has potential, and we had to do something. You know, uh, if if you're a longtime Hawks fan, you remember like 
being on that treadmill of mediocrity where like we were making the playoffs every year. We had the longest at the time, the longest active streak of making the playoffs in the East, if not the NBA, I can't remember which, but you know, we were never even getting to the conference finals. If we, the one year we did, we got beat and we just kind of rested on like, well, we have a good team. Not really going to do anything about it. I appreciate that the Hawks are actually like, you know, Oh, we went to the conference finals. And then the year after we took a, big step back. Um, I appreciate that they're, you know, taking a big leap and saying, you know, we have to do something about this. We have to like make some change. And, you know, based on what I was talking about earlier about how the two can fit together, especially like looking at the offensive strengths of Trey Young, the defensive strengths of DeJounte Murray. I I like it. Uh, it's not an A grade for me, but it's just below it at, at B plus. Yeah. Well, I will say, I mean, DeJounte Murray, yes, like he's got very strong defensive capabilities, but I mean, he's also a very capable offensive threat as well. I mean, he averaged around nine assists and over 20 points a game last uh, last season. Granted, as the number one option in that offense, and he's not going to be that in Atlanta. <laughs> He'll definitely be the number two option. But I saw a stat... Uh, Murray and Trey Young are going to be the first teammates in history to enter a new season after averaging at least 20 points and at least eight assists a game in the previous season. So that's, I mean, that's just telling right there. You've got two guys with really good vision who can distribute the ball. Realistically, you don't have to play many minutes without both of them on the court. You can have at least one on the court at the same time. And, you know, with, with Murray, you can just put all of your shooters out there. Um, as far as my grade, I'm probably going to give it a B. I think maybe if we could have avoided that pick swap or maybe included another player in the deal and not given up a first rounder, uh, then I would I would not have minded that just because we still have a lot of guys getting paid a decent chunk of money uh, on on the roster. And I'm not sure exactly what the Hawks are going to do to follow up this move, but from what, from everything that we're hearing, it sounds like they are going to do something. So this might just be the first domino to fall, but who knows? Maybe the Hawks go all in. They are almost assuredly going to go into the luxury taxes here. So that shows to me, the Hawks believe in Trey young. They believe in uh, Nate McMillan in the core of the team. And hopefully that means that they'll just continue to invest in the roster and, see if we can really compete with all the other good teams in the Eastern conference. I mean, you know what they say, scared money, don't make money. Like at some point you have to make that push because if you don't, you're not going to get anywhere really. But yeah, I completely agree with what you were saying uh, a second ago. Don't like, this isn't 2k where you just kind of like you have your starting rotation, then you have your bench rotation and you just kind of like swap them all out, like large group subs all, all the time. We can realistically have Trey Young and or DeJounte Murray on the court for like most, if not all of the game. Uh, and one thing that we complained about a lot last season was, oh, well, when Trey Young sits down, there's no one to get the offense going. So, And what was happening a decent amount was, you know, we'd have a decent lead when Trey Young went on the bench and then the other team would just come storming right back because we couldn't score anymore. Like, 
I think this turns a lot of those losses into wins. So, um, of course, we'll we'll end up giving a more like retrospective grade as the season goes on, or like towards the end of the season. We'll have to see how it works. But right now, I'm excited about it. Same here. So definitely let us know what uh what your thoughts are. If you're a Hawks fan, if you're a Spurs fan, how do you feel about losing Dejounte Murray, but then getting all those picks? I mean, I feel like the Spurs, their entire roster is like 22 years old or below. Yeah, it's going to be Greg Popovich and, it got, and a bunch of guys that can like that only recently were allowed to go out to the bars. Yeah, like Pop and all of his grandchildren, <laughs> basically, <laughs> at this point. But anyways, um, so that wraps up this uh, brief segment. Um, exciting news. Exciting time to be a Hawks fan. We'll see how it pans out. But when when we come back, we're going to get into the hot seat, the fun fact, and the return of That's Disrespectful. All right, so now it's time to get into our hot seat, like we do every episode. And this one, and this one's fun. We mentioned this guy briefly earlier in one of our superlatives. We're putting Benedict Matherin on the hot seat. What a special day. You're on the hot seat before you get your first paycheck. You're, you haven't played an NBA minute yet, and you're on the hot seat. Here's why. So before he was even drafted, he said that there was one test that he was looking forward to as a rookie. That's his first game against LeBron. And pause for just a second. Why does this story come out every year? Like, I mean, not the part that we're about to get to, but every season it's there's someone, they're just like, how do you feel about going to you get to play against LeBron? Are you excited to play LeBron? Like, let them breathe, man. Like, come on. They're like, how can we make the draft about LeBron? But anyway, moving on. If it's ESPN, then they'll find a way. <laughs> True. Uh, but here's the, the quote from uh, Matherin in regards to playing LeBron. A lot of people say he's great. I want to see how great he is. I don't think anybody is better than me. He's going to have to show me he's better than me. End quote. Uh, what? <laughs> so, like, before y'all come at me saying, it's the Mamba mentality, shut up. Like, you know, I respect when Kobe's like, oh, yeah, I don't, I go on the court assuming, like, no one's better than me. That's also Kobe. He's been doing, like, he's been doing it, right? Benedict Mathern has not been in the league doing it, okay? Save it for a few years until you've been balling. Like, you're still a puppy. And LeBron is a top five all-time player, uh, who's still balling, by the way, into his like late thirties. So like, I don't want to say like kiss up, and I certainly don't want to say like play scared or anything. But also like, come on, let's let's be a little respectful here. Yeah, I mean, we're not even into that disrespectful yet, but it's it's a little disrespectful. I mean. It's it's freaking LeBron you're talking about, and also like late thirties LeBron, which is not the same LeBron as it was when in his prime or when he first came into the league, whatever. So LeBron's going into his nineteenth season, right? Some of these guys are nineteen, like they they don't even know a world without LeBron in it. I mean, sure, I I agree. It's like okay, we get the LeBron question, whatever. 
But like, why can't you just be like looking forward to play against one of the best? You know, I believe in my abilities, but you know, obviously he's, he's one of the greats. So it'll be, it'll be cool to, you know, step on the same court as him. Like that's giving respect while also being like, I believe in myself, not just like, let me test it and see how good he really is. When also he's like, this is not even close to like the prime LeBron anyway. So like, what are you talking about, man? It's just, it's just interesting. The, the, these guys, they, they need, they need some humble pie, you know? 100%. Circle that game when the Pacers play the Lakers. Cause we know LeBron sees everything in the media. It's, He's like Tom Brady in a, in that way. Like he's going to see this. He it's going to be like the Jordan thing. I took that personally or whatever, and he's going to come hunting uh, for for little Mathern puppy. But we'll be looking forward to that one. But admire the confidence? Question mark. But but still, that's hot seat material. If I've if I've seen it this week, for sure. And also a perfect appetizer for our next segment which is that's disrespectful which i believe is also nba draft themed mike take it away all right so so stephen a smith i I could almost stop there like (laughs) good start (laughs) i feel like stephen a is like quite the mixed bag where sometimes he says things and you're just like yeah yeah i feel that yeah uh uh-huh I got you. And other times he says things and it's just like, do you watch basketball? Like, do you read things or do you just kind of like, oh, I need to like say something like inflammatory or I need to like say something wild to get media attention. We know it's going to be more of the latter, right? His job is to say crazy things. Now, I think they had him on ABC's coverage of the NBA draft, which is the one that I was watching when uh, Dave and I were co-watching the draft over the phone. And I remember saying before this point, like, why is Stephen A even there? Uh, like, he's not going to give, like, analysis to these, like, players. He, you know, he probably hasn't watched most of them anyway. And then I said, I think, like, Oh, I get it. If he's just like there to like respond to the Knicks because he's one of the most famous Knicks fans, but like outside of the eleventh pick, like leave it alone. Who cares? Well, we get to the eleventh pick, and before it gets traded to the Thunder, you know, we still think the Knicks are making this pick. They select Usman Jang, and Stephen A says, "I don't even know who that is." Now. Here's the thing. If if that was like Gabrielle Prasida. Yeah, if that was Gabrielle Prasida, you know, like I get it. Whatever. Like we can't all have heard of like all of these, you know, we we can't all watch or read 25 mock drafts and, you know, all this nonsense. If it's Khalifa Diop, like sure, man, whatever. Here's the thing. Those 25-ish mock drafts I was telling you about had Usman Jang in the first round of every single one. Uh, Often in the lottery. The fact that he hasn't heard of this guy means he hasn't read a single mock draft. He hasn't paid attention to anything that, like, 
any of the actual analysts are talking about. He's not prepared at all for the draft. He's literally just there to talk and like make statements uh, with no like actual backing. Making statements, assuming assuming that he's not going to be good because he like hasn't i'm sorry he hasn't played like crazy college ball or whatever like it's i mean low-key bias to the american players like we can't i can't help but notice that this is a the french guy that like he says this about who's been playing in australia you know um it it just shows that Stephen a isn't read up or aware on like the actual prospects or like you know how the draft is actually going to shape out he's just pursuing headlines and this isn't like groundbreaking like this isn't some groundbreaking statement from me like i've been fooled my whole life thinking he's like a a well-read analyst but my point here is that like they still give him the airtime on draft night like if he made that same statement on first take the next day i don't care that's fine. Whatever. But don't give him the airtime on draft night where people are like tuning in to see these players get drafted and get analysis about the guys their team just drafted just for Stephen A to like smear him and say he's never heard of him because he doesn't like pay attention. Like that's disrespectful to waste our time and to honestly like sort of mar this guy's draft by having one of the most prominent voices in sports say he's basically a no name in a manner of speaking. I 100% agree with that last part, especially like, sure, people tune in to first take to watch Stephen A. Smith to hear what he has to say. Like, people are tuning in on draft night to get analysis of these players, not for the, quote, analyst to just be like, oh, I don't know who that is. Maybe he had heard of him and he was just saying what he needed to say to get a reaction to be like that, that you know, fulfill that role that he's playing. Which also, sorry, I don't care. Um, now, do I love to see Knicks fans in pain? Absolutely. <laughs> do I love that on national television? Yes. Yes, I do. But that part aside, yes, 100% disrespectful of that guy. And this is not really related to that's, that's disrespectful. But... um I called Usman Jang to the Thunder and said he would be his exactly their player and they ended up trading for him and drafting him. So that's, I'm just going to, I didn't really have a place to say that earlier. Um, But yeah, that's, let's just take a second to applaud my basketball knowledge. Um, Hey, if you want to, if you want to compare me and Stephen A, Stephen A never even heard of this guy. I went in ahead and called exactly the team who Usman Jang should go to, and then it happened. So, I mean, who's really the more prominent voice? Who who should really be on ESPN? That's all I'm saying. Send the Mike and Dave podcast to ESPN. Start the movement. Give the people what they want. <laughs> and what the people want at this exact moment is Dave's fun fact. <laughs> What do we got? That's a smooth transition, Mike. Well, I, I got to come with the smooth transitions for Dave's one fact. It's like a staple. Yeah. I mean, it's my segment, but you finding a way to transition into it is like your thing. So, uh, yeah. All right. My fun fact for this week. 
is that I got engaged this past weekend. Um, yeah, I figured this was probably going to be a good time to uh, to share that with anyone listening who doesn't already know me, um, like in real life, I guess. But um, but yeah, I got engaged to uh, my girlfriend Danielle of about a year, and it went amazingly well. Everything I planned went perfectly, and uh, I basically just knocked it out of the park. Um, you know, <laughs> maybe I need to have some humble pie. Uh, but but realistically, yes, um, it went very well. I am very very excited, and it was great because Mike also got to be there. Um, we did like an engagement party um, afterwards and Mike was able to drive up and be there for that. So I was, I was happy about that, that he was able to share with in that with us. And I mean, as fun, as far as fun facts go, what could be more fun than getting freaking engaged? Right. So, uh, that's my fun fact for this episode. As far as fun facts go, what could be more fun than getting engaged? Well, I still like the incest blocker, but (laughs) But you know what? I think this one will take the cake. Um, yeah, I uh, I was definitely honored to be able to be there. It was tough driving home after. You know, I was having a little trouble seeing after being blinded by that like rock on Danielle's finger. Hey, uh, <laughs> it's your boy. Uh, I I'm still like mm, seething a little bit. Um. You can keep this part in the episode or not. I'll let you decide that in editing. You wouldn't let me open the show with this so that you could make it the fun fact. Come on, man. Hey. What kind of crap is this? Now, hey, you know what? It's my news to share, my boy. Uh, no, that was kind of funny. For So Mike tried to open the show with like, but before we get into all of that, we have some exciting news to share. And I just told him like, nah, I'm not a, I don't really want to share that on the podcast. You know, it's personal information, whatever. And he was like, okay, cool. I respect that. Nah, I actually did want to share it, but on my own terms, on my own segment. So, um, yeah, sorry, Mike, but regardless, shout out to Danielle, who I'm sure is listening to this, uh, because, um, she's, I mean, she's got to be our biggest fan. Right. Uh, and I'll, I'll give her some credit. She knows a lot more about sports now after dating me than she did before. Uh, and she actually voluntarily listens to some of the episodes and watches sports with me sometimes. And sometimes I even talk about my fa- how my fantasy team is doing and she doesn't like start looking at her phone or whatever. <laughs> so like, you're the real MVP. Um, and yeah, just wanted to share that with you all. Yeah, we do appreciate the... Uh endless support that she provides as one of the biggest, if not the biggest fan. We do have some other big fans out there. Uh, my girlfriend's brother-in-law, shout out to Birch, has become like a, a super big fan of the podcast uh, in the past few weeks. So shout out to him. But you're not engaged to one of us, so you're kind of handicapped in that department in terms of like how high on the, the fan hierarchy you can be. But we appreciate all the fans, uh, but there is a, a certain level of appreciation for the ones that we get engaged to. 
one hundred percent. We we appreciate but, fan engagement, <laughs> but you can only be a be a certain level of engagement <laughs> when you're engaged to us. Okay, regardless, whatever. These are the rules of engagement. Yes, if you will, exactly. But in all seriousness, uh, congratulations, my brother. Um, very happy for you. Uh, yeah, uh, all things that I've texted you and you've ignored the text too because, you know, you're so busy with your freaking life. But with with all of that being said. Is this your payback for me saying that you didn't eat vegetables? <laughs> oh, no, that's only just begun. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I, I did not respond to the text because I was busy on the day of and then I saw Michael later and thanked him, et cetera, et cetera. So just putting that out there. Regardless, Let's wrap up this show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. As always, uh, make sure to, if you've enjoyed this episode, if you want to hear more, you can subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on. And if you really enjoyed it and you want to show your, uh, you know, when I say congratulations on my engagement, give us a five-star review slash rating and, uh, and you can let me know that way. Or reach out to us on social media at Mike and Dave pod, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and you know, share your congratulations there. If you so choose, or you can just say, man, those superlatives you guys did were just absolutely fantastic and spot on. I have no edits whatsoever. I would not have done a single thing differently, which is really the only accurate response. <laughs> um, or you could be different and, and argue, uh, which we also welcome. Um, we like having discussions with you all and, and interacting with you guys. So we appreciate all the support. And I think I pretty much just covered everything. Yeah. I mean, nothing really left to say. So, you know, uh, between you just saying all that and then getting engaged this uh, weekend, I think what you're trying to say is that I'm useless. <laughs> I serve no value to you. So now that I am completely useless, Let's just stop talking and wrap up the show for episode 32. Or we'll talk to you guys in two more weeks for episode 33. But until then, this has been Mike. This has been Dave. And you've been listening to the Mike and Dave podcast. <laughs>